the ethical issues in science and engineering. Uh, my name is Michael Foster. I'm a uh, assistant professor of mechanical engineering here at George Fox. And uh, first up today, we'll have David Opperbeck. Opterbeck, sorry, uh, associate professor of law at Seton Hall University. David. Okay, as Henry V said, we few, we happy few. Um, I'm glad to be following Dr. Fox's talk because uh, I think there's a lot of uh, kind of consonance between uh, what he was talking about in terms of uh, ethics and policy and <clears throat> the sort of thing that I'm uh, trying to talk about today. Um, kind of first introduction here, w you know, what do I do? What am I all about? I'm a, I'm a law professor. I teach in um, an institute of law, science, and technology. And our uh, group at the law school is kind of focused on uh, technology policy issues, on uh, internet uh, issues, on access to knowledge in developing countries. Uh, a lot of my research uh, deals with uh, pharmaceutical companies and access to drugs and also access to information on the internet. Uh, so the sorts of things uh, that I'm kind of uh, getting at today is how do, how do we deal with questions about access? Uh, all of this, the, the, Dr. Fox's talk about, about engineering and uh, the developing world, a lot of those questions for us as lawyers uh, are questions about access. How much of this do we protect with patents? When are there exceptions to patents? Uh, copyrights, trademarks, all that sort of, uh, sort of thing. Uh, so we deal with um, getting onto the internet and, and having access to materials there, uh, scientific and technological literature, uh, open access publishing, uh, or closed access, or different models for that, uh, patents uh, on inventions, copyrights on artistic work, uh, and a couple of key areas, I think, uh, that uh, we deal with that have a resonance with some of the themes in this conference are tribal and cultural knowledge, uh, indigenous resources, and how and to what extent uh, can, can uh, um, companies in the developing world exploit those or not exploit those, and, and uh, how do we deal with that? Now, my, the kind of ponderous title for my talk uh, stems from the fact that this is really kind of a, uh, a philosophical, uh, what, I tr what I'm trying to see it as is a philosophical foundation for an ethic of access to information and, and technology. Um, and I also sort of see it as having some, some consonants with some uh, discussions in theology, especially in the uh, science and religion, science and theology discussion where the idea of critical realism is, is kind of uh, an interesting idea. Um, so what's the problematic that I'm trying, trying to address? Um, and to kind of set that up is to talk about how information policy is structured now. Uh, how do we as lawyers, as, as judges, as legislators um, look at what it means to get access to information? Um, and we essentially think of information right now as what we call a non-rival uh, economic public good. So what does that mean? It's, it's basically a good that um, is non-rival means everybody can share it, right? We can all, if it's just information, it's something disembodied, we can all share it and not use it up, unlike... Uh, say my glass of water here, right? We can't all share this and use it, it'll be used up. Information we can share it, it won't be used up. Uh, and it's essentially non-excludable, meaning that uh, it's really hard to set up barriers to, to people getting information. It's easy with a glass of water, I can you know, protect it. Uh, it's easy with physical property, relatively, I can put up fences. It's less easy with information, especially now in kind of the, the internet age. 
Um, so if we have something like a public good, usually economic theory tells us, well, we don't really have to worry about propertizing it. We don't have to worry about protecting it. Um, and you know, we're, we're uh, very much invested in the metaphor of the tragedy of the commons in information policy. Uh, you know, if we have a commons that can be used up, yeah, we might need to put property fences or, or figure out other ways to manage it. Uh, if we have a commons that can't be used up, we're not so much worried about that, um, except that we have this problem of dynamic and static efficiency. And what we mean there is static efficiency is, okay, am I going to use this resource up? Dynamic is, who's going to produce the resource? Uh, if I don't put a fence around it, will anybody bother to produce it? Uh, because if someone produces it, someone else can come and, and, and say, oh, I'll take that, right? I'll take that idea and I'll use it. I'll take a free ride. Um, so we sort of conceive of information policy as a, as a sort of a utilitarian trade-off. And we say that, well, we'll tolerate some exclusion. Uh, we'll tolerate some laws that create exclusion uh, so that we can promote this dynamic efficiency. This goes all the way back uh, in the United States to... Uh, kind of the founding of our republic to the, to the creating of our constitution, which has a clause on intellectual property. And we, kind of in our field, uh, often refer to Thomas Jefferson and a letter he wrote to, to Benjamin McPherson in the 19th century, early 19th century, about uh, ideas. And he was talking about the intellectual property clause of the constitution. And he said, an idea is like the flame on a candle. Uh, you know, I, I can have an idea, my candle lights up, I can light your candle, my flame doesn't go out, you have the flame. Now, you know, and, and you know, you can think of Jefferson, everybody in the world kind of lighting their, their candle and sharing that, that idea. Uh, very American approach, I mean, in, in continental Europe at, at the time, there was a, a very strong strand uh, called moral rights, which has to do with, uh, it's kind of a Hegelian idea, it has to do with your personality, I'm investing myself in my, my art. Uh, and so there's something of myself that, that should be protectable inherently. Um, and that approach is still kind of there, but the American view, this, this Jeffersonian view, is the dominant view. It's, it's become uh, invested internationally through a number of treaty regimes, uh, the, the trade-related aspects of intellectual property or TRIPS, where basically our ideals are now um, required to be adopted by pretty much all the world, including the, the developing world. Now, uh, and this is the famous quote from Jefferson. I'll just flash it up for a second. But, you know, very classic uh, kind of Jeffersonian enlightenment uh, thing. And he's got a number of, of letters and other correspondence where he talks about this idea. Interestingly enough, uh, he's got another letter where he talks about this flame kind of extinguishing the prejudices of religion. Uh, so, you know, a very, very kind of enlightenment ideal of, of what knowledge ought to do. Now, in my, in my paper as a whole that I'm, I'm working on in this project, um, I'm trying to trace some of the roots. Where does this idea, this enlightenment idea come from? And it, you know, this is kind of highly simplistic. I mean, you can spend a whole career tracing this out. But I just picked kind of three representative strands. Um, the Baconian method, the idea that science is, is done by gradual steps, um, that we're always making a little bit of progress. Uh, and there is, in fact, the word progress in the U.S. Constitution about intellectual property. Um, Newton's ideas about the universe. Obviously, Newton's mechanistic universe, that's a little too simplistic a way to state Newton's view. Um, 
But the idea that, you know, there's orderly laws, and we can kind of discover these. We can discover these laws. Uh, and in discovering these laws, we're really discovering something kind of direct about how the universe works. Um, and I kind of picked out Locke as a kind of seminal thinker for the American founders. And his epistemology and his theory of language and his idea that if we're, if we're uh, empirically observing something, we're able to use language that fairly closely responds to what we're observing. So uh, a very foundationalist kind of epistemology. So I would almost say, in fact, I do say, it's a, again, maybe a little overstated, but in this view, information is really nature as it is. Uh, if we, that flame on Jefferson's candle is, in fact, almost a direct human perception of kind of peeling back the curtain and, and seeing how, how nature works. And so I think for them, one of the reasons that ideas are non-rival, one of the reasons they can't really be used up is because you can't use up nature. Nature is so vast, so big, um, and it kind of belongs to everybody. You can't really use it up. Now, big question for me, and this, this, this whole utilitarian strand is, is really kind of the main thing that informs information and technology policy today. Big question, though, why does this survive today? Um, kind of philosophically, uh, after Kant, after postmodernity, these notions, I mean, how, whichever kind of, you know, however you view postmodernity and things like that, n almost nobody is, uh, you know, kind of a Lockean in a very pure sense anymore. Right? We all recognize that in some way um, our access to, to, to nature isn't exactly direct. Um, so how does this, how does this survive? Um, pretty interesting, I think, and I'm, I'm just going to take a brief detour because this helps contextualize it, and it, maybe it'll uh, give you a little information about sort of what we do in, in legal theory. Because um, I don't think a lot of people realize, when people think of the law and, and students come to law school and they think, well, I'm going to learn these rules, and they're kind of out there, um, and they just are what they are. It's not really how we think of the law today in, le in uh, legal theory. We did think of it that way in the 19th century, 18th and 19th century. Uh, we call that formalism. There was a heavy emphasis on certain types of natural law theory, um, not exactly the same kind of natural law theory that some Christian thinkers talk about today. But there was that sense of law. It's a scientific endeavor. Laws are there. They're built into nature. We discover them. We discover them. Uh, in the early 20th centuries, we had a movement toward realism. So we had um, uh, people like Learned Hand and, other, and uh, Brandeis and other judges like that saying, wait a minute, uh, that's not actually what happens in courtrooms. Real people have real disputes, and judges decide disputes based on real people, and then they sort of go back to the principles and justify their decision. They don't go to a principle, discover it scientifically, and apply it. They look at a dispute, they decide it, and they go back. Uh, so they're really, for them, for the realists and the pragmatists, there is no law out there. It's just judges making stuff up. Um, now, in kind of post-modernity, this sort of leads into critical legal studies, which says, yeah, not, not only is there no law out there, but all of this is just power. It's just different groups asserting power against each other. There's no normative basis at all underneath the law. We're just analyzing power. Now, you know, obviously, as, as, Christian, as a Christian legal theorist, I, you know, I, I see the merits in some of these I, ideas. There's certainly a lot of truth to them, but we don't want to quite go there. 
Um, and there are some inklings now of coming back to saying, wait a minute, we've gone too far. There's got to be some normative basis. Um, and so there are, are some new approaches to natural law, uh, some things that I'm in interested in, which is virtue theory uh, as applied to the law. And so part of this sort of contextualization is seeing information theory going through these, going through these phases. All right. In the, in the postmodern context, um, there is one kind of postmodern, major postmodern critique of information theory, which is the idea of the romantic author. So this says, you know, if you're familiar with postmodern literary theory at all, the idea is, well, you know, there's really not an author. Um, that's an old idea, this idea that someone, someone is brilliant and writes something, someone is brilliant and has, has this flash of invention. Um, that doesn't make sense. You know, people draw on other people's work, communities create things. Um, and so let's do away with the idea of protecting the work of authors. That's the major critique. Um, interesting critique, a lot of value to it. I, I think there's some major problems with it. Um, historically, I'm not sure it's a really accurate uh, view of how even Enlightenment thinkers thought about. I mean, there were certain strands of that, that kind of romantic ideal, but it's not that strong. Uh, and my, my biggest problem is it's really anti-realist. It really says there's nothing, there's nothing real out there. There's nothing, no sense in which we're actually making progress and learning something. We're just constructing. We're just making it up. Um, and, as, and as I look at the legal literature, and if you, you, know, you spent time to look through it, you'd see that what we end up with is really these kind of quagmires. Either we say it's just power and we can't really adjudicate between competing groups, as to you know who gets access to a technology or who gets the right to protect something on the internet, um, or we say let's just be pure pragmatists. Let's balance utilities and you know uh, for example, there's a big debate now about net network neutrality on the internet. Um, you know should uh, internet service providers be required to basically charge the same kind of fee structure regardless of what the end user application is? The providers want to charge differing fee structures because if you're using uh, you know, a, uh, a say Skype to make um, a peer-to-peer -peer phone uh, to make uh, internet phone calls. Um, well, they want they want a piece of that action. They want to regulate that, so they want to charge more. Um, and so the pragmatist view says, well, let's just look. Let's balance utilities. So there's all these economic studies, and you have you know ten on this side and ten on that side and ten in the middle, and it, it never gets resolved because there isn't uh, a normative basis. Okay, so. What I want to uh, try to do, I guess there's one piece I kind of left out here, which I do want to mention. How does this come together, right? How, how do these different, how does this kind of anti-realist strand and this pragmatic strand come together? Um, I suggest it's through information theory, through Shannon's information theory. Uh, the the uh, number of leading legal theorists uh, about, uh, especially about the internet and network technology, have picked up on uh, mathematical information theory, and I've said, look, you know, information is code. We can we can abstract code from some any kind of physical medium. Um, the the signifier, the code, or the sign, the code is divorced from this from what's signified, uh, and uh, so code is really mal totally malleable, totally meaningless in itself, uh, and we can compress it, and we can you know, kind of have these open channels and let people control code, and basically the whole idea of cyberspace, this whole idea that there's a something there, a construction called cyberspace, 
um, is, a, is a postmodern information theoretic idea uh, that a lot of um, legal thinkers have come up with. So um, that brings together this kind of postmodern strand and this pragmatic enlightenment strand. It says, yeah, we, we can look at information as kind of disembodied and non-rival, even though we're not Lockeans anymore. We can still do that because we, we look at it through the lens of information theory. It's just code. So, you know, code can be, you can do anything with it. It's non-rival. Um, trying, to, trying to kind of find a bridge between these things, I was drawn to critical realism. I came to it actually through Alistair McGrath's work on faith and science and his scientific theology and some of his other work, which I, I find really productive and interesting in that area. Um, and I got into it a little more deeper and read actually Roy Basker, who's kind of the father of critical realism. And the idea here is that, yeah, there, there, there is a middle way. It, it's true that um, we don't have one-to-one -one access to nature as it is anymore. It's true that we, we have to construct things through human language. It's true that we construct culture to some degree. But it's also true that we, we, there is reality. We, aren't, we can't be totally constructive, constructivists. There is something given to us. Um, and especially Basker's idea of culture uh, and, he, and he uses this concept of emergence that some of you may be familiar with in kind of studies of mind. So we don't just invent culture. We, we have a reality that's given to us. Culture emerges out of that. But as human beings, we also are constructing culture. We also are building culture. And culture kind of emerges out of that milieu, and, it, and we supervene back down on reality and kind of sort of in a way change reality, sort of this dialectical relationship. In theological terms, I would think of this as human beings are co-creators. Right? God, God creates. Um, there, there is a contingent universe that's given to us. Uh, and, and we can't change that in that sense. But God gives us the capacity as human beings in his image to co-create and to build culture. And he gives us freedom uh, to, within certain parameters to build culture. So I want to try to apply this idea. And, and within the legal literature, uh, nobody is talking about critical realism or these ideas at all, um, which, which may account for some of my trouble in getting some of this published. <laughs> um, but uh, and it's been very interesting in the, in the critical realist community. It's a very small community in England. We're kind of excited about some of the application of this to, to legal theory. Um, okay, so how would I apply this to uh, the legal regulation of information? How, what, do we th what kind of thing, our ontology of information, what kind of thing is information? And, and, it, and we decide what kind of thing it is that will help us decide, I think, how to, how to regulate it, how to give people access to it, that sort of thing. Well, information isn't like Jefferson's candle, exactly. It's not really true that, uh, I think, that uh, if I have an idea, I have some knowledge, uh, I can uh, touch my candle to yours and we both can possess it uh, equally and without uh, diminution. Uh, I've studied this a little bit in the biotechnology industry, uh, and I'll also tie this to, to Polanyi's ideas about uh, tacit knowledge and embedded knowledge. Uh, the fact is, I think, let's take a biotechnology patent on a gene. There's certain things that have to be disclosed in the patent uh, you have to enable someone, as the technical legal term, to be able to practice the invention. So, in theory, someone is supposed to, someone with skill in that field, skill in that art, is supposed to be able to read the patent, 
and from reading it, construct the device or uh, you know, sequence the gene or whatever it is that's disclosed in the patent. And that, that's kind of the root of that Jeffersonian idea, right? Touch the candle. It doesn't really work that way. Uh, I mean, there's quite a lot of embedded knowledge in most fields, tacit knowledge. Kind of, I know the exact timing of this from feel, you know. Um, I know how to, how to tweak this equipment just right um, from doing it for years. Um, I even probably know some, some procedures, some ways of doing things that we in our lab don't want you in your lab to know because it gives us a little bit of an, of an advantage. And we don't have to disclose all that in our patent application to get what we need from the patent. Um, so there's a lot of this kind of embedded nature of knowledge that I think makes knowledge <clears throat> not really non-rival, but in a social sense, rival. Um, and, and this is really not something legal theory has dealt with yet. And we deal with non-rivalry uh, in an economic sense, and that's kind of like dogma it's, it's in, in our field. Uh, so to see, and, and there are a number of us kind of talking about now social rivalry and what, what that means. Um, but unlike kind of the postmodern legal theory, it's not information isn't totally constructed. We we can't really. I mean, in a technical sense, yeah, we can abstract code uh, and mess mess with code and, and have code signify other things. But in the sense of it doing something, something valuable for people, um, we can't really do that. Um, there are aspects of of the way we are, uh, of the way I, you know, in a theological sense, in the way we're created. Um, that kind of bound and govern what we're going to do uh, with with certain technologies and what we're able what we're able to do. Now, tying this into the, the ethical theory, um, there's another big strand in our uh, law and technology literature that talks about information ecology or uh, or uh, information environmentalism. And the notion here was, well, you know, we're, we're trying to think about. The, the different communities that want access to information, to technological literature, to uh, patented medicines, to things like that. Um, let's think of all of the knowledge and information that's produced, all the technology that's produced as a sort of ecosystem, all the culture that's produced, the art, the literature. Um, and uh, so as we have resources within law and ethics to talk about, well, who gets access to different natural resources, who gets access to this lake? Um, how do we deal with the Native American tribe who, who asserts hunting rights over this area? Um, and we have some frameworks for dealing with that. Let's, let's try to apply some of those frameworks to this, this body of, of information. Um, and I, I think it's a really fruitful metaphor, uh, and there's a lot of good literature on it. The problem, in my view, is that uh, so far, the people that are talking about this are really constructivists. So it kind of makes no sense to me. Uh, you know, we have an environment, but it's entirely constructed. So how do we talk about preservation? Because um, it's not just given to us. It, it can't be used up. Uh, so what I'm suggesting is that um, the cultural environmentalist movement, if we have more of a, a deeper philosophical basis um, for how we're talking about information, uh, we can start to draw on other resources we haven't yet, and particularly environmental virtue ethics. Um, there's a very well-developed tradition in, in, in uh, environmental virtue ethics about the virtues and the vices that promote human flourishing and the flourishing of our environment. Um, and I think a premise of that is our environment is kind of given to us. You know, you know whether and there's a number of uh, Christians who are writing in environmental virtue ethics, so it's given to us by God, and we're given stewardship over it. Um, 
or you know from more of a naturalist perspective you know it just is what it is we, we can't we can't kind of make it up or change it um, and so how we deal with these resources um, the resource itself is going to be deeply affected uh, by the kind of virtues and, and vices that uh, we bring to it and I, in, in the in the whole paper I go into a little bit of detail about that network neutrality debate that I mentioned and some of the virtues and vices that, that might come in, into play there. And I hope to develop that uh, part of it in more detail. Um, I'd also just kind of finishing up, I, I want to suggest that uh, this, this way of looking at information might also have some interesting connotations for um, other theological questions like, say, the intelligent design debate. Um, because in, in kind of looking at that, there's a very interesting, uh, in some sort of the capital I, capital D intelligent design uh, proponents, there's sort of a view of information as um, kind of co-equal with energy and matter. You know, something that is that are that are informations like laws. Um, and I would probably kind of suggest that information isn't exactly like those kind of laws because we are uh, co-creators uh, and because God, as as a Trinity, um, is dynamic. Is really the the original source of of information that. Um, you know, isn't sort of just given, but but um, emerges and, and supervenes back on the creation. All right. Questions? Yes. Uh, interesting. Um, if this approach were applied to Internet policy, how would the, let's say, the, the web look different than it does today? Great question. Um, <clears throat> here's my, and I haven't developed this as well as I want to yet. Here's my thinking now. Um, I see a lot of these issues like network neutrality, or I also talk about um, in my paper problems about pornography on the Internet or terrorism on the Internet. Um, the sort of constructivist approach doesn't really have a response to that other than sort of a vague free speech response. Um, and I really sort of look at this as a question of Internet governance and, and what sort of culture the Internet is. Um, idealists about the Internet see it as sort of a completely open source culture. Uh, and there's aspects of, it, of the root of the Internet that, that derive out of that open source culture. So the idea is don't we shouldn't have any kind of governance or regulation. Um, a lot of the pragmatists, and I actually heard a talk this past week by one of my colleagues who suggested, well, the uh, Federal Trade Commission or some agency like that ought to regulate uh, significant portions of, of the Internet. And, and my response there is, well, why, why some agency of the U.S. government? I mean, if we think about the virtues that I would say generosity, beneficence, uh, things like that, we think of vices we want to um, kind of stay away from, greed or uh, exploitation of children and pornography. I think there needs to be an internal governance structure of the, of the Internet. Right now, the um, ICANN, the uh, Commission for Assigned Names and Numbers, sort of does that with domain names, but it's not democratic. It's run by about 10 people. Um, so what I almost am wondering is whether there's, uh, and I haven't fleshed this out, uh, whether there's almost a, a way to have an internal quasi-governmental structure within the Internet where all of the participants in the community uh, can affect how the, how the community is structured. Great, David, thank you very much. Um, 
I find this a fascinating uh, presentation in light. I'm, I'm not familiar with what you do professionally, but to introduce Michael Polanyi, which if you ask me in graduate school, uh, most important book I ever read was Personal Knowledge, you know, followed with Tacit Knowledge. I find this amazing the way Polanyi can be used in so many other disciplines. And if you ask me hermeneutically where I am, I'm really an outgrowth from, uh, from Polanyi, uh, gone in a hermeneutical direction. Uh, so that's the common, and those who haven't read Polanyi, please do. It's, it's amazing how this can be applied into your discipline. Here's the comment with reference in, in uh, the terminology, like you, you mentioned anti-realist. Is there such a thing as a Paul Feyerabend anti-realist within your discipline? that you can identify as such. Does that, does that make sense, what I'm asking? Yeah. Um, well, I think people would, he would take issue with this, but James Boyle uh, is, is one of the key names. He's a, he's a um, law professor at Duke, and, and he's a key uh, kind of person who developed this uh, cultural environmentalist and this romantic author critique. I think that whole strand, and his, his focus is more on cultural information like music and literature and things like that. But I think that whole strand would, would, would also apply to scientific knowledge in the sense that they would, they're basically constructivists. And, and they would say, you know, no, we're not really making progress in science towards knowing an external reality. We're just kind of creating worlds and creating cultures um, that we're going to be replaced by other kind of social constructions that don't really get at anything real. Would they even use the word anti-realist? Would they acknowledge that term? No. No, uh, okay. No, I mean and... and, and um, uh, really, I think I'm one of the first in our literature to tease that out, although there's uh, Julie Cohen in our literature, who's someone a lot, a lot more prominent than I, has started to do that, but she hasn't quite come out in those terms. And said, well, one of the questions I was going to also ask, but you presented, this comes through McGrath, fascinatingly so, to yes. get you to, to Polanyi. Yep. And, yep, of course, exactly. it's, it's, your, it's your Christian background that allows you to go to this category. So. Yeah, and it's exactly, uh, I mean, that is exactly how I got exposed to it, is, yeah. is through, through reading McGrath and, and Thomas Torrance yep. after reading McGrath. Yeah, exactly. thanks. Yeah. Right, we're actually out of time. Whom um, Ted Davis introduced to me move to, to the next way, one. So. Literature. Thanks. Oh, uh, yeah. 